What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. It's a bit old-fashioned for some, but I won't do nothing to it. If you don't like it, you can find somewhere else. It's perfect. I love it. Old-fashioned, potentially divisive, that scene from Edgar Wright's new Last Night in Soho nicely sums up the reception the movie itself has been getting. I don't think being old-fashioned is necessarily the movie's problem. All right, all right, just wait. The latest from the director of Baby Driver and Shaun of the Dead is a time-bending slasher film set in London during the swinging 60s. We've got a review. And our Jane Campion oeuvre review continues with 2003's In the Cut, starring Meg Ryan and Mark Ruffalo. We all missed the boat on this one back in 03, I think, Adam. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to Film Spotting. In the cut is, let's go ahead and cut to the chase here, Josh. Jane Campion's worst reviewed film. It has a 46 on the review aggregator site Metacritic. It was even more lowly received than the last film we discussed in our Campion Oeuvre review, 1999's Holy Smoke. I think we agreed that Holy Smoke, while maybe not top tier Campion, it was certainly unfairly maligned, not properly appreciated, but it also featured a really top-notch Kate Winslet performance. I'll be curious to see if In the Cut benefits from any of its performances, including a very much cast-against type Meg Ryan. It also stars Mark Ruffalo. We will discuss later in the show. But first, yep, reactions to Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho have been all over the place. Are Adam and I on the same page? I've got this kind of gift. I can see people, places, things others can't. This is the closest most people ever get to their dreams. They're not just dreams. Jack, I don't want to do this. You think you can just walk away? It really happened. What did you see? 
Leaving ghosts. Edgar Wright, Anya Taylor-Joy, Thomason McKenzie, the movie's title. That's literally everything I knew about last night in Soho walking into the theater, which is, as I've said many times before, my favorite way to go into any film. Blissfully ignorant. And yes, it is ironic then that for over 16 years, I've been part of a weekly discussion show wherein I routinely spoil new movies for listeners, regardless of how much I avoid actual spoilers. I had not seen the trailer or any clips or stills, nor did I know the genre listed as horror slash psychological horror when you Google it. De Palma, Argento, Giallo. I'm sure I've heard somewhere over the years that Wright was a fan, but that Soho would be the filmmaker's tribute to those directors and that pulpy brand of Italian horror movie for which Argento is most known, that I wasn't aware of. How I responded when Wright's intentions became clear, well, we'll get to that. Right now, I'm more interested in how you responded, Josh, so I went looking for clues. Out of the thousands of reviews archived at LarsonOnFilm.com, when you search Giallo, how many titles do you think come up? Probably just Suspiria, I would think. I think that was my introduction, sadly. That's a good guess. Wasn't mentioned in your writing. Zero. Comes up zero times. What about Argento? The answer is three. And only one of those results is relevant to this conversation, your review of the 1977 cult horror classic Suspiria. For what it's worth, you did review Luca Guadagnino's 2018 remake for your site and discussed it with me here on episode 704, but you didn't mention Argento by name in the piece. Your three out of four star review concludes thusly. All of Suspiria's laudable qualities are sensory then. Anything that relies on reason or logic, narrative, say, or character development, suffers. The movie is a collection of ghoulish creative impulses, some of them gorily sadistic as when a character is trapped in a room of barbed wire rather than a coherent story. And the ending involves so much psychedelia that it takes the film out of horror and into a different realm altogether. In truth, it's closer to camp. Say this for Suspiria, then. It's a bloody trip. After your backhanded compliment last week praising Wright's Soho soundtrack, and only the soundtrack, I'm naturally suspecting that you have deemed the movie a failure. The mystery is why. Perhaps the answer is lurking in your final judgment of Suspiria. Is Wright's tale of a young woman, Ellie, played by Mackenzie, who comes to London to fulfill her dream of being a fashion designer only to become obsessed with the aspiring 1960s singer-slash-doppelganger who haunts her dreams— not sufficiently sensory for you? You said Suspiria was a collection of ghoulish creative impulses, which could apply to Soho, but Wright's story inarguably lacks Argento's gleeful commitment to gory sadism. It's also almost certainly far more narratively coherent and less campy. Considering then its inspiration, and your mostly positive response to it, might that in fact be your issue with Soho? Is it possible that the guy who parodied zombie movies riffed on the screen's best buddy cops, and staged one of the most electric bank heist slash car chase opening scenes ever, just isn't having enough bloody fun here? Well, Suspiria is certainly a telling touchstone to point to when it comes to this movie. I can't mm -hmm. say that I held it up in my mind as I was watching last night in Soho, even though I was aware that it was an influence on this film. I don't think Last Night in Soho needs more camp. I don't think it needs more absurdity. I mean, it's certainly a sensory experience. I think what it needs, and it's not necessarily because Suspiria is a great example of this, I just think it needs more coherency. Uh, I mean, 
you said you didn't know what you were getting into when you went to see this, Adam. Did the movie know what it was giving us? I mean, do you, do you get a strong sense that um, from the script to the direction, um, even to the performances to a degree, that everyone was on the same page here? Because this mm-hmm. thing is just a jumble uh, of influences that did not come together for me really at all. And I'm going to sound, you know, really down on this film, which is probably going to be a little too strong, but I got to say, this was one of the most tiresome experiences I've had in the theater this year. Maybe I was just being crabby on that day, but as soon as it started to abandon some of its interesting early ideas, seemed to forget really about um, Thomas and Mackenzie's character as anything more than this figure to process through increasingly outlandish and very sensory set pieces, um, I just kind of gave up on it and felt overwhelmed by the sensory uh, elements in a way I never was with Suspiria. I mean, I think, you know, again, not that Suspiria definitely had one coherent idea, People have pulled many different themes out of that film. I don't know that it's any one thing that is clear on the screen, except maybe the color red. I think that's the guiding idea behind Suspiria. And certainly we get nods to that with the use of red in Soho. Um, But at least it had its own bonkers vision. And the vision here is all over the place. Um, I can maybe go into a little bit more in terms of exactly what I mean in some of the, the three different movies. I think this is trying to be. Um, but that's kind of where I was. I just, it was a very, very difficult watch, um, which absolutely surprised me because big fan of, uh, Wright's other stuff. Yeah. It surprises me too, because I didn't find it tiresome at all. And I didn't find it a jumble at all. Honestly, I found the way it evolved in terms of its story structure and character development to be pretty natural, I suppose, or pretty organic. And overall, I thought the movie was pretty thrilling. And I do think some of it has to do with that lack of expectation going in. I know there were probably lots of people who didn't like the movie who went in in a similar state as I did, but there was something to say for just being surprised by this movie and being surprised not only in that I had no expectation, as I was alluding to, that it would actually become a Giallo movie. So when it did, that was something I found pretty fascinating, but also I'm not so attached to Wright as a filmmaker, nor have I studied his films closely. I mean, I think we've talked about all of them or almost all of them here on the show before, but I I wasn't attached to any expectations when it comes to his work either and felt like I needed to see certain things or have certain beats hit. And I say that very deliberately because of how rhythmic and how musical his films usually are. And again, I'm telling you my experience here, Josh. I know it's not a case where you were probably trying to compare it to Scott Pilgrim versus the world or anything else. But for me, it was as if I was experiencing something new and surprising every moment of this movie. And that was actually a good thing. And it starts with that beginning where, again, without anything kind of to ground you and you open on Eloise in her bedroom at home and the song that's playing and that she's dancing to is Peter and Gordon's A World Without Love. And I think maybe if I remember correctly, there's a digital clock somewhere in the room. But otherwise, between 
the music she's listening to, the posters on her wall, the furniture even, her wardrobe, the overall look of it, everything about the aesthetic in that opening scene, it all suggests this is the 1960s. I was sure that we were watching a film that was actually set in the 1960s in that moment. I can't remember if it is when she gets on the train then to finally go to London to go off to the School of Fashion or when she actually arrives that you realize, oh, no, this is the present day. I mean, that was so jarring to me. Yeah, I think it was her headphones for me. She had like beats on. That's it. Thank you. It was the Beats headphones. See, this is where my inability to take notes in a dark movie theater hurt me here. It was exactly the Beats, but that was jarring in a really kind of, I'll use the word again, thrilling way. And it just told you that things are not going to be what they seem to be with this movie. And here's where we can get into a little bit of coincidence spotting too. This film connects so nicely to Jane Campion and our series on her films and what we're going to talk about later within the cut. Mm -hmm. These themes of repression and sexual desire, that moment where it sounds like to you, it, it went in a direction that wasn't pleasing at all, but where it switches to fantasy first, then horror. And I'm going to say pure fantasy, kind of sweet fantasy. This this girl going to bed at night and discovering in her dreams that she she essentially gets to live the experience, that 60s experience that she's always admired and that she's always aspired to live out, that she gets to do that as soon as her head hits the pillow, that she can become this exotic woman, Sandy, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, that she can be wooed by the handsome man. It really is like she's entering a movie, which makes sense for Wright, of course, as well, and all of his movie references, that as soon as she closes her eyes, it's as if she's now the lead character she's always wanted to be in the movie of her life. And I was caught up in that rush. And then just as you think, okay, maybe it's going to be that kind of movie, it turns again and it gets dark and the reality of Sandy's experience and how it doesn't match the, the fantasy that was in Sandy's mind or in Ellie's mind. That's, that's where it gets twisted and dark. And for me, it was, it was fun. Yeah. I think for me, it was not just that they made those turns that was surprising and fine with that creative decision, but it was the implications of each turn. And in the cut is absolutely a perfect pairing for this because one of the things the movie seems to be interested in, in one way at the beginning, is a young woman navigating her way through the threatening world of men, right? The first cab that Eloise takes when she arrives in London. At first, the driver seems friendly, but then he makes a few, um, mm-hmm. you know, creepy comments about her potentially being a model. And she has to essentially, you know, she flees from the cab because um, she's not sure what this guy is up to. She sees another guy outside of her dorm room that she's suspicious of. So we get the same sense, which we'll talk about in the cut, I'm sure, of a woman's headspace um, yeah. when men are dominating the physical space in threatening ways. But what I got frustrated by is let's go back to these visions that that you were describing, which again, technically, you know, right is ingenious in the way he depicts these, uh, especially when they start to kind of meld identities. I love the shot of Sandy at a nightclub kind of prancing down the stairs. And then in the mirror behind her, we see Eloise watching her. That's just a mm-hmm. gorgeous shot. Or how about when they're dancing late in, later in that sequence and Sandy is twirled by her partner and someone comes in front of the camera. And when she appears again, it's Eloise. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is really intricately uh, handled, as you would expect from Wright. But what I kept 
what I started asking myself is, okay, there's a couple of possibilities here. Eloise visions are dreams, as you said, fantasies that she's living out. Or is she suffering a mental breakdown? Because we learn very, very early on. This is not a spoiler. I think it's in the opening sequence. Um, she lives with her grandmother, and we learn that her mother died by suicide. Um, and her grandmother is expressing great concern that this might be too much for her to go to London on her mm-hmm. own because she's struggled with some mental health issues as well. So we have that as an option, right? Maybe this is a mental breakdown. Then as it proceeds, there's the hint that, well, maybe is she being haunted by Sandy? Is it not a projection of Eloise, but is this a spirit haunting her? Now, I'm not saying the movie needed to necessarily be clear about one of those. Ambiguity can be a great strength in films. But again, it goes back to the implications. I think the movie is a little flippant about suicide and kind of using that as an easy emotional hook. Um, And then by the ending, I think it completely undercuts any interesting ideas this movie has about the exploitation of women at the hands of violent men. And and I, I can't say exactly why, because that would spoil things, but I do want to reference, um, a response I saw on Letterboxd that summed it up way better than than I did when I started putting notes together. This is Willow McClay, again, who I follow on Letterboxd. Willow said, Last Night in Soho follows the recent trend of a movie trying to do a feminism and ending up neck deep in misogyny instead. I don't know if I, I had that strong of an impression that it was, you know, engaging in misogyny, but it absolutely, to me, muddled this interesting idea at the top of how Eloise is going to navigate this world with both a narrative twist it takes and then, again, the thematic implications that has. Hmm. Yeah, it's tough because I don't want to engage in a debate with someone who isn't here and whose stuff I haven't read on this subject matter. But I would just say, while that reaction doesn't surprise me, and this is really tough because I can't fully explain myself without getting into real spoiler territory here either. It doesn't surprise me because there's a moment at the end where I was starting to question what I thought the movie was trying to really explore and suggest. And almost immediately after I had that thought, the movie told me what was really on its mind. It it completely course corrected. And I actually think that it's all there. And that feels like a misread of the ending of the film to me to suggest that it somehow goes back on what it's really after in terms of the, the feminist aspect. I know that that is probably pretty vague. Maybe we can get into spoiler talk another time about this movie, Josh. I will also say about the point you made when it comes to the clarity or lack of clarity around her character and her mental breakdown. I just see that and and I have no issue with this because it's a giallo film. That's that's very clearly what it becomes. It feels appropriate for the type of film that it is. That's really a plot point in the sense that it's both things. It's obviously both things that she is both haunted and she's someone who if not suffering from mental illness, she's someone who, as the grandmother says, she feels more deeply and sees things a little more deeply. So that's there for us to understand why other women, other young girls have probably come and gone over the years through that room upstairs in Mrs. Collins' home, and none of them have succumbed to being haunted the way Eloise has. But Eloise has because she's, she's gifted. In that way, that's just a a supernatural kind of element of this this film and this material, isn't it? Yeah, it's there. But again, 
it feels just like an element. It doesn't feel like a through line. I think our basic difference here is that, you know, you found a lot of clarity and coherency in what this movie wanted to do, and I didn't. And and honestly, it's it stands out for me as a pattern if you do look at Wright's films. So the screenplay here is by Christy Wilson Cairns. Uh, her previous credit is uh, as screenwriter of 1917, the Sam Mendes film. And this is one of the um, few times that Wright has not worked with Simon Pegg on a screenplay. And if you look back on this track record, for me at least, Pegg does seem to be the missing piece. He co-wrote Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and The World's End. Now, he didn't write Scott Pilgrim versus The World, which might be my favorite Edgar Wright movie, actually, but that had a very strong source material in the Brian Lee O'Malley graphic novels. So if you look at Baby Driver, which I think you liked even less than me, Mm -hmm. um, and in retrospect, you know, it's it's stuck with me less than it did on first impression. Um, That one he wrote on his own. Here he's working with a different screenwriter. And this could just be a case for me, at least, that Wright needs Peg to to provide the the just the sort of ideas that the aesthetics can be hooked on in compelling ways. And and the other thing, just to go back to the, the performances real quickly, because this is something I've, I've noticed from Anya Taylor-Joy, who I think was really good in The Witch, uh, her debut, and um, also in Emma. She was fantastic. But Emma is another stands out for me because in a lot of other stuff I've seen of her, including the series The Queen's Gambit, people tend to just pose her. And she knows how to hold a pose. Um, She's very striking, has a a completely unique look and can just kind of transfix the camera. But Emma showed you that a filmmaker can also show she's capable of more. Um, And I think she's just required to pose here. I I didn't find um, her performance uh, very compelling in terms of being this young woman who may have been actually experiencing these things, not a, you know, a vision. For me, she never moved beyond the vision that we initially meet her as. And Mackenzie, she gives it her all. I mean, say this for, I think this is a grown-up role compared to what uh, we've seen her in before, Leave No Trace, Jojo Rabbit, so good in those films. Um, She's committed here, but um, again, I I feel like she's just kind of being shuffled along from one, one crazy twist to the next. Hmm. Yeah. And if like me, you didn't feel like the movie felt like a series of crazy twists. I saw much more of a compelling kind of through line and arc with her character and found that she embodied a lot of different tones. I know you said that as a negative with the film, but I think without her performance to kind of ground it, then maybe this movie would go off the rails a bit more. And I think what you say about Anya Taylor-Joy here is fair, certainly in the sense, too, that she is a figment of the imagination, albeit one who was a real person in the scope of the film, she is someone who is concocted in the head of McKenzie's character. So Eloise is seeing her a certain way, and I think we're always aware that it's that it's her point of view who is watching this character and seeing her as the ideal that she may be wants to see herself as, and then as the victim that she wants to avoid being. So I do think that's just a byproduct of of the character and the screenplay here to an extent. But I overall love the use of doubles here in the movie as well. And of course, we're talking about these two characters who really are doppelgangers. And there are a ton of examples in the movie of, of multiple versions of some characters, then versus now. And a lot of mirror imagery. You talked about that great sequence, that 
first sequence where she goes into her dream and they go to the club and she's twirling with Matt Smith's character, this manager of female acts. We'll call him that for now, Josh. And they're dancing. And when we see the reflection in the mirror, it's Mackenzie instead of Anya Taylor-Joy. But the one I like the most actually is maybe the most subtle. And it's later in that night where they're in the car And the camera is out the passenger side window. So in the foreground is Joy. In the background is Smith's character. And then in the in the driver's side window, you could just barely see the apparition like appearance of Eloise. She's she's always there, even even in that moment. She's the reflection in the window. But there is a moment where Joy's character looks then into the side mirror and sees her face staring back at her where they actually kind of connect through this this time and space in a way that i think is is haunting but i also like the script in terms of its use of doubles there are a bunch of plays on words and phrases that have double meanings and again this is where my notes fail me there were seven or eight examples where i caught myself smiling but one i distinctly remember and it's probably not even the best one at all but it's an exchange between Jack, the the Lothario manager, and Sandy. And she asks him something kind of provocatively about her career, but there's some sexual innuendo to it. And he says, I think I can manage you. You know, and it's like the manage that he's going to do as her manager, but of course as well, he can handle her. Bunch of examples like that in the script that I like, and that duality even extends to the soundtrack. This is an area we agree on. I think you you overall did like the musical choices. Oh, for sure, yeah. And that that opening I mentioned with the Peter and Gordon tune, but a great use of Petula Clark's downtown. Here's what struck me about all the musical choices that I really applaud right for. It is that that exploration or that harnessing of the duality so a world without love you hear this song downtown as well they're these upbeat catchy pop tunes but the undercurrent if you listen closely to the words i mean please lock me away and don't allow the day here inside where i hide with my loneliness right downtown how does that start when you're alone and life is making you lonely you can always go downtown when you've got worries all the noise and the hurry seems to help i know downtown it's all though longing it's it's as if it's a character like mckinsey's character eloise fantasizing about what life is like downtown but when you listen closely to the song you don't really get the sense that the speaker of the song really knows what it's like at all or is getting to experience any of that they're actually lonely and only dreaming about it i really got that sense as i listened to every song choice throughout last night in soho yeah right knows how to pick a track and he definitely knows how to move a camera i will give him that Okay, well, we can agree on that, if not much else, about last night in Soho. If you see the movie and agree or disagree with our takes, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. More threatening men ahead when we discuss the latest film in our Jane Campion oeuvre review, the serial killer thriller In the Cut, plus Massacre Theater. Stay with us. Baby, you don't know what you're saying because you're a victim of Starstruck, 
What the hell do you think that I do? Come on, come on. Come on, every morning I walk in for five months, say hi. What the hell do you think that I do? You sell little cars, that's what you do. I wear $150 slacks, I wear silk shirts, I wear $800 suits, I wear a gold watch, I wear a perfect D flawless three carat ring. I change cars like other guys change their shoes. I'm a thief. I've been in prison, all right? So what? I James Kahn there with Tuesday Weld in Thief, Michael Mann's 1981 feature directing debut. It has a special 40th anniversary screening in 35mm as part of the upcoming Chicago Critics Film Festival. Thief is definitely one of the great Chicago movies, a very good to great directing debut. And this fest is one we've highlighted over the years on the show tried to put some films on the radars of our listeners who maybe aren't in the Chicago area and for the ones who are and can actually participate, can buy a ticket, hope that maybe they'll come out and see some of these movies. The Chicago Critics Film Fest usually runs in May, been going on for seven or eight years. They took last year off. They're back this year in November, this month, the 12th through the 14th. And longtime listeners know we often have Steve Procopi come on the show, a programmer of the fest, and give his highlights. Couldn't have him here in person this year, but that didn't mean we couldn't have him leave us a voicemail and share some of the films he is most excited about at this year's fest. Hello, Adam and Josh and Film Spotting Faithful. This is Steve Procopi, a film critic at Third Coast Review. I'm also the vice president of the Chicago Film Critics Association. And uh, for the purposes of this entry, I am also a programmer at the Chicago Critics Film Festival. Uh, kicking off Friday, November 12th, with the directing debut of Maggie Gyllenhaal called The Lost Daughter, starring Olivia Coleman, an amazing film I don't want to even say anything about. There's lots of mystery. There's lots of strangeness. Uh, and I think it's easily a, an Oscar contender for Coleman. On Saturday, November 13th, we've got a couple really neat things, including our, our 7 o'clock slot. We've got Bernstein's Wall by uh, the filmmaker Douglas Tarola, who brought us a uh, documentary a few years ago about the history of National Lampoon. This is a much different film, but but equally informative. Uh, and there's obviously lots of great music in it, too. Uh, also, that Saturday night at midnight, we are playing a 40th anniversary print, uh, 35 millimeter print of Thief. Uh, when we announced this on Twitter recently, we got a very nice note from James Kahn, thanking us for playing it. So we're going to consider that our stamp of approval. Everyone should come out and see that 35 millimeter print. Uh, on Sunday, November 14th, we are playing the film Jockey. That was a big hit at Sundance this year. It's from a first-time director named Clint Bentley. Uh, more importantly, it stars uh, Clifton Collins Jr., who's usually relegated to being a supporting player. He's a great character actor, very unbelievably reliable, usually the highlight of any movie he's in. This one, he's the lead. Closing out the festival this year with Red Rocket, the latest film from director Sean Baker, who whose last film was The Florida Project. Uh, this film is about a down-and-out male porn star uh, going back home to sort of try to kickstart his life again after basically being tossed out of the industry. It is it is riotous. It is a lot of fun, uh, a lot of desperate moments in it. Uh, but it is a, it is a very different movie than Florida Project. 
uh, or his film before that, Tangerine. So uh, could not recommend it more highly. In fact, that movie and our opening night film, uh, Lost Daughter, are right now they're the two biggest selling films that we've got just in terms of pre-sale. So if you want to get your tickets, get them soon. Uh, you can uh, see the whole schedule, descriptions of all the movies, and buy tickets at uh, chicagocriticsfilmfestival.com. Or you can uh, just go to the musicboxtheater.com, theater with R-E, spelled R-E, dot com. They also have the whole schedule, and you can buy tickets there. And again, November 12th through the 14th at the Music Box Theater. We hope to see you there. Thank you, gentlemen, for letting me come on and talk about this. And hopefully next year, uh, much like the festival, we'll be back to where we were, and I'll get to come in and see your wonderful faces. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye. Thanks to Steve for filling us in on the lineup there. A lot of good stuff, Adam. Is there a title or two that especially jumps out at you? Thief, I imagine. that That's one. I've never seen Thief, so I might have to stay up late and make that midnight wow. screening. But yeah. how about you? Yeah, there are all sorts of titles, and Steve did highlight a few of them. Thief, right there near the top of the list, actually seeing that on the big screen, seeing that in 35 millimeter would be fantastic. have only seen it on DVD. Red Rocket. Steve mentioned as well, we're always going to be interested in the latest film from Sean Baker, of course, of The Florida Project and Tangerine. But a couple other films that did stand out to me, Josh, were Procession, which is the new documentary from Robert Greene, a really fascinating filmmaker who made Kate Plays Christine back in 2016 and Bisbee 17 in 2018, both movies that weave together nonfiction with fiction or these elements of of reenactments. In the case of Kate Plays Christine, an actress portraying a real person for a project, that person, the newscaster, Christine Chubbuck, who killed herself on air. And Procession is a film about survivors who are seeking justice, having survived sexual abuse by Catholic priests. I don't know whether the film is going to have that same stylistic approach or not that those other films I mentioned have had, but I'm curious about any film that Robert Greene does. What about you? Yeah, for me, you know, it's Thief, as I mentioned, but also Red Rocket. I mean, we're we're getting to that time of the year where uh, we got to start thinking about our top 10 lists and that sort of stuff. And I would not be doing my due diligence if I did not see the newest Sean Baker before considering such a list. So I've got, you know, this list going, uh, an unrealistic one of all the movies I feel like I need to see before the, the year runs out and Red Rocket is at the top for me. I think it's at the top for me as well, but a very close second, obviously, for both of us has to be The Power of the Dog. Of course. The latest from Jane Campion. I know we're going to have some other chances to see it, but 9.30 p.m. on that opening night. So after The Lost Daughter, which Steve mentioned, Maggie Gyllenhaal's directing debut starring Olivia Colman. Following that is the latest from Jane Campion. Our whole oeuvre review has been building up to this, Josh. So some great films playing this year's Chicago Critics Film Festival, which does run again November 12th through the 14th. For tickets and information, go to chicagocriticsfilmfestival.com. Next week for us, Adam, we'll get to Chloe Zhao's Eternals, which comes to theaters this weekend. 
looks like, from what I've seen, the MCU stands have their work cut out for them. This one has not fared well with critics so far. There have been some outliers. I know Dave Chen, friend of the How show. How about Dave Chen? He is out there <laughs> defending it at least once a day on Twitter. Yeah. But for the most part, people have not been too kind to this. So I don't know. Maybe that'll help our experience, lower our expectations, and let us be surprised. Well, I did see the trailer playing before last night in Soho this past weekend, and it sufficiently lowered my expectations as well. Oh, so, great. <laughs> yeah. We will also get to the final film and our Jane Campion overview. It is 2009's Bright Star, though really the penultimate film as we're building up, as I said, to the power of the dog. Bright Star is, in fact, the last Jane Campion feature film we have until Power of the Dog. It's been over a decade since she has given us a film. Bright Star is a movie about the relationship between poet John Keats, played by Ben Wishaw, and Fanny Braun, who's played by Abby Cornish. My notes tell me that this is the first film in our overview that we reviewed on the show. I gave it four stars. Well, not we being you, Josh. You weren't part of the show yet. But on episode 289, I gave it four stars. I would love to tell you that I have any recollection whatsoever of having reviewed Bright Star here on the show. I was sure I had not reviewed any Jane Campion film. Well, it, it was a while ago, so I don't blame you for that. I believe I was positive on it as well when it came out. Not that high. So this, though, should be a good experience for both of us getting a chance to revisit Bright Star. Definitely. Also, next week, we'll have the results from the current film spotting poll inspired by Eternals. It posits this scenario. The director of an upcoming MCU film will be a recent winner of the Film Spotting Golden Brick Award. Who should it be? The options we gave you are the winners of the last five Golden Bricks, the award we give to the overlooked or underseen film of the year from a new or emerging director. So those choices were Darius Martyr, who made Sound of Metal, Joe Talbot, the last black man in San Francisco, Koganata, who made Columbus, Anna Rose Homer, The Fits, or Bing Liu, who made Minding the gap. And we kind of expected this. Some negative folks in the comments who just resent the very premise of the question that has us dooming these <laughs> promising young filmmakers to the Marvel stable. And maybe also not a surprise to find Darius Martyr in the lead. I don't know. It, it could be chalked up to recency bias. It was, as we noted, the film that did just win the film spotting golden brick this past year and also it did get a lot of attention from the academy but maybe others just feel someone like darius martyr and that material somehow is best suited for marvel josh i don't know and i won't know until i read the comments next week on air sounds like we're making film spotting nation grumpy with this one huh We've, we've done well, our job then. It wouldn't be a deeply flawed film spotting poll if there wasn't some grumpiness and angst. You can vote now and leave a comment, even a mean one. We'll take it. That's fine. Filmspotting.net. We also have a giveaway to announce, Josh. This one is a free advanced screening that you can enjoy from the comfort of your own home. Monday, November 15th, if you RSVP, if they're still available as first come, first serve, you will get a link to watch Netflix's Tick, Tick, Boom, directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda, starring Andrew Garfield as Jonathan Larson. And I'm not familiar with the musical that shares the same name as this film, Tick, Tick, Boom. It was his pre-rent musical. But my understanding is, Josh, that this film does chronicle the writing of Rent, the 
the inspiration for and the making of Rent. So I'm really eager to see it, musical fan, and yeah, a fan of Rent too. Tick, tick, boom. If you want to see it early and see it for free on your very own couch, go to filmspotting.net slash events to enter to win one of those links. This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, they've got a great pairing that they're wrapping up. It's part two of their Just Deserts pair. So Dune and Lawrence of Arabia. I already gobbled up the Lawrence of Arabia show. That was great. It's a movie I kind of never tire of listening to people talk about. It's so wonderful. And I'm very eager to hear what the panel makes of the new Dune as well. Your next picture show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes of the next picture show post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And yeah, all four of them, the whole gang is back because this is their 300th show, 300th episode that they are celebrating. So congrats to them. And you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. If you would like to support our little show, you can do that by becoming a member of the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. For $5 a month, you get a host of benefits. Two biggest ones, you get monthly bonus episodes. And our latest show is an Ask Us Anything episode where we kind of riffed on our desert island director choices favorite movies at different ages different stages of our lives and also talked about how we prepare for the show so if that inside baseball material is of interest to you sign up if you join now you get access to the entire back catalog of episodes including all of those bonus shows we're thinking about what we're going to do in November. And one of my ideas, Josh, we'll have an on-air production meeting was to look at the list of big movies that for whatever reason we've missed so far this year, I'm sure there's one or two or three titles that we share that a lot of people have talked about that for whatever reason we missed. And maybe we just kind of commit ourselves to, Focusing on one of those, do a bonus show episode, and then we're also kind of getting some of our homework out of the way as the calendar has turned to November and the the feeling of tremendous pressure now having to fit in every possible film we can see before we do our top 10 show at the end of the year is very palpable. Yeah, I, I like that. I'm always looking for any excuse, any nudge to catch up with some of those movies I miss. So I can think of The Last Duel is a recent one neither yeah. of us have seen. I'm sure there's a couple of more that we can we can get to. Yeah, if you'd like to nudge us one way or another, please do. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net, or you can send us a message through Patreon if you become a family member. Also, our family members get access to our monthly trivia spotting events. And this weekend, it's coming up, Josh. It's November 6th, 2 o'clock, a matinee affair, some great captains. It's going to be a really fun time. We do have some tickets still available, so if you want to become a family member and buy a ticket, you can play. Or if you're just a regular film spotting listener, not a member of the family, but you're interested in trying out trivia spotting, send us an email. Let us know that you want to get on the wait list. And when there are some extra tickets available, we will shoot you a note with the opportunity to buy. Patreon.com slash film spotting is where you sign up. It's time for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A couple of weeks ago, Adam and I massacred this scene. Where's my family? You should have stayed dead. I am not your mother. No, my mother never cleaned the toilet in her life. Maybe that was her problem. <laughs> my mother. 
My mother told me what was necessary to rule in this universe. By killing people? I create life! And I destroy it. That was Eddie Redmayne and Mila Kunis in 2015's Jupiter Ascending. I had totally forgotten that Mila Kunis was even in that movie, written and directed by the Wachowski sisters. Along with that massacre, we reviewed Dune and talked about the fifth movie in our Jane Campion oeuvre review, Holy Smoke. So why then that scene from Jupiter Ascending? Well, why not any scene anytime from Jupiter Ascending? <laughs> Here's Sarah Welch Larson in Chicago. The movie is Jupiter Ascending, a.k.a. my favorite movie to watch in a group of people who have never seen it before and who have no idea what they're in for. I love this big, dumb movie and its incredible costuming with all my heart. The costuming is a solid Dune connection, as both are massively scaled space operas with excellent production design and costume work. So Sarah likes to assault people with Jupiter Ascending who come to her home. Okay, I like it. Very welcoming. Very welcoming. (laughs) Here's Andrew Willis from Atlanta. The connection is both it and Villeneuve's Dune are space operas, one in which spice is the most desired element in the universe, the other honey, maybe? I remember Mila Kunis controlling bees, maybe? (laughs) Anyway, I appreciate Josh going for it, but he didn't quite hit the heights of Eddie Redmayne. Well, Well, hey, few people can, I'm afraid. Yeah, if you could do that, you'd have an Oscar. That's right. In your bathroom or something like Eddie Redmayne, but you don't, do you? Here's Lisa and Chris of Air, Massachusetts and Navasota, Texas. For this week's Massacre Theater, you had me at cleaning toilets. This can be none other, speaking of bathrooms, there you go, this can be none other than the extravagant fun mess of a film that is Jupiter Ascending. This may have more in common with Lynch's unhinged version of Dune than Denis Villeneuve's more somber adaptation, yeah, but both sagas deal with a unique drug that controls the universe and makes those in control of said drug extremely powerful. It makes the wealthy ridiculously wealthy, while those that live on the harvested worlds are left with nothing. Both tales deal with long nurture bloodlines, immense world building, and that one special savior who could save the entire universe. One tale has bees. There you go. You were right, Andrew. The other has worms. And as Channing Tatum's character is part canine, you could say both Lynch's Dune and Jupiter Ascending have battle puns. Well done, Lisa <laughs> and Chris. That's right. He is. He's like a. He's sort of like a wolf spaceman or something. He right? is. It's exactly. It's exactly what he is. I think that's his credit on IMDb. Nice. Okay, you're going to reach into the film spotting hat and pick out. This week's winner. Our winner is Stephen K. from Pasadena, California. Congratulations, Stephen. Email feedback at filmspotting.net. Tell us your preferred shirt size and address, and we will mail out to you your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. I think your dialogue is beautiful. I really do. I love it. Then why the hell don't you just stand still and say it instead of wandering all over the stage? You're supposed to be looking for your soul, not an ashtray. Okay, Josh, so you are a little bit under the weather playing Hurt this week Mm. on the show, and that might just add the right element you need to this scene. Yeah, I'm I'm a little numbed from uh, from my COVID booster shot, (laughs) shall we say. So so that's going to help me, I believe, in this performance. Gotcha. I'm going to start it off. You're going to give me the action. Are you ready? Let's do it. And action. What's the matter with you, huh? What are you on? You said you wouldn't drink today. No, Ma, I ain't drinking. You promise you wouldn't drink anymore? You're not going to drink anymore, are you? No, Ma, I ain't. And you're going to change those stinky leathers you've been wearing for the last three weeks? No, I don't know about that. 
What are you on? Oh, it's just some low-grade acid. It's not heavy. Aha! Ah, uh, you know, God, I cooked. I cooked the duck. No, baby, it's okay. Uh, people are coming, you know. Ray and Dorothy, they think we're flaky enough. You said that we would wait until after, and now you're going to peek before me. No, no, it's cool. We'll trip, and then we'll eat our feast. And... <laughs> Scene. scene. So that's actually a script of all of our pre-show recording. <laughs> Pretty Just much. Just whenever we're chatting off air. That's how I talk to you normally. Yeah, exactly. And for some reason, I'm going to be haunted tonight by the I cooked the duck. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but the way you uh-huh. said it, deeply disturbing. Okay. Well, then mission accomplished. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, November 15th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks, man. <laughs> Be friends with Avery? Do I know you? Detective Malloy. There was a homicide last Saturday. The deceased was seen in a red turtle the same night that you were there. You don't remember anything, didn't see anything, didn't hear anything. I don't remember seeing or hearing anything unusual. If you don't remember anything, give me a call, all right? Detective, good looking. I was wondering if you want to go for a beer or something. You gotta go. Just for the exercise, you should go. You want me to romance you, take you to a classy restaurant, no problem. You want me to be a best friend, no problem. I could be whatever you want me to be. We get back to our Jane Campion overview with the trailer for 2003's In the Cut. This overview is a chronological look at all seven of Campion's features in anticipation of her upcoming The Power of the Dog. That will be in theaters later this month. In the Cut, as we mentioned earlier in the show, is Campion's least acclaimed film. It followed 1999's Holy Smoke, which was also a failure critically and commercially continuing a trend that found Campion far from the success she'd experienced a decade earlier with The Piano. This one is based on a novel by Susanna Moore. It was co-written by Moore and Campion, and it stars Meg Ryan in a role originally meant for Nicole Kidman as Franny, a writer and teacher who gets into an intense sexual relationship with a police officer played by Mark Ruffalo after he questions her about the murder of a woman in her neighborhood. Jennifer Jason Lee plays Ryan's free-spirited half-sister, Pauline, and Kevin Bacon, in an uncredited but memorable role, plays Ryan's former boyfriend, John. You think the lack of credit was Bacon's choice or Campion's choice? Oh, you, you think he wasn't proud of his work? <laughs> oh, we'll see. Friend of the show, Dana Stevens from Slate, writing for The New York Times in 03, said the film was a disjointed, sometimes fascinating melange of moods, associations, and effects. And that was about as good as it got from critics at the time. The movie opened in limited release Halloween weekend, and despite starring Ryan, one of the biggest stars of the previous decade, it never played on more than 800 screens, and it made less than $5 million at the box office. Josh, I know that you've come around on this movie since 2003. You, probably, and others were confused at the time by Campion making what appeared to be an explicit, but in other ways, conventional erotic thriller in the tradition of things like Basic Instinct and Fatal Attraction. That, I'm guessing, is no longer your take? Oh, no. Big switch on this. I mean, I was mixed originally. It wasn't like Mm. I dumped on it. I, I knew at that point that Campion was enough of a talent that... My lackluster reaction 
maybe needed to give the movie another shot. Just hadn't had a chance to do that or taken the time to do that in the years. So yeah, I gave it a mixed review, figured there were some things I must have been missing, and indeed there were. I was thinking about this, Adam, in the context of our overview, and I'm pretty sure when I saw in the cut, I had not seen Holy Smoke. So I do wonder if um, this idea of sort of dangerous sexuality would have seemed more fitting to me, and I wouldn't have been as surprised that she'd be interested in this sort of material if I had seen Holy Smoke. But really, that's no excuse because I'd seen the piano, (laughs) which it's, as we talked about, like it's all in there in the piano, sort of the allure, but also, you know, the risks that come with pursuing desire. And it's right there in Sweetie as well, her debut. So this is, in some ways, it's very far afield in terms of the literal content from what we had come to expect from Jane Campion. But in terms of theme, man, it's incredibly on point in interesting ways that I failed to Mm -hmm. recognize. And the other major thing we need to give time to, which I completely missed out on, is the brilliance, I think, of Meg Ryan's performance in terms of trying to capture what Campion wanted to do here. I just could not get on board with, you mentioned, you know, against typecasting that we had. It was just so hard for me to reconcile the Meg Ryan we knew with what we were getting here. But on this watch, it completely worked. Yeah, it completely worked for me as well. I think it's a big reason why I had such a dramatic shift in my reaction. That said, watching it this time, I was having such a strong reaction to it, Josh, that I was sure it was my favorite campion so far, like even more than the piano. Okay. And as it ended, I was still pretty sure it was my favorite campion. And in the final tally, it might be. I love it. Why? And then, oh boy, as I started, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to take the, the reverse way to get to the things I liked about it here, Josh. That's what I'm, I'm pulling this time as I started to reflect more on what was unsatisfying about the ending the nitpick floodgates did open a bit so even though i've come around on it like you and definitely recommend it i'm not sure i can say that critics were way off at the time i mean everything about the denouement feels rushed and feels off because i think for better or worse and it is both Campion just does not care at all about the procedural right. crime thriller aspects of the story. Totally. Which is a problem when you've wrapped it all within this framework. The bodies keep piling up. Someone close to Franny ends up dead. The central relationship and that dynamic, which really is the whole film, that relationship and that tension and that sexual tension and chemistry between Ryan and Ruffalo does require the killer to be revealed and punished or not. So how it wraps up can't really feel like an afterthought, which it does here for the most part. Then once you do know the killer, you start unspooling all the coincidences that led to that and and that the plot requires. And again, you can kind of go down that rabbit hole. You also start thinking about characters like Kevin Bacon who yeah, what's maybe wrong should, with Bacon? Have, should have changed his name to Kevin Herring, as in Red Herring. Well, well there's a bunch of Red Herrings in this no, film, No, I know. I, and this this isn't a knock on Bacon as an actor here. Yeah, I to think be he's clear. really good. Right. I, I, think, I think he's interesting. But what is he and even Sharif Pugh, who plays a 
promising but kind of dangerous student of hers. Dangerous in that there's always kind of this sexual tension again with him lurking as well. You're right. And he's flirtatious with her all the time. What are they doing in this movie? And the answer is mostly to serve as suspects to distract us from sussing out the killer's identity. And then maybe you've got a good answer to this one, but what is with the recurring motif of the poetry she keeps reading on the subway? It, Mm. it, it adds some kind of texture because she's an English teacher and the deeper she goes on this dark sexual journey, the darker and creepier the poetry gets. I, I don't know, but you can, you can start to pick apart this movie, I think in very, legitimate ways yeah despite despite all of its strengths which i will get to yeah the genre elements are absolutely not the strength especially how it wraps up i will concede that (laughs) but i think you're right it's because campion doesn't really care she's interested in doing something differently the poetry on the subway you know it's it's not a massive part of the movie but for me it was just a way to show us that a franny is so adrift in her life and in this world that she's going to grasp onto those as oracles you know, yeah, see and I think, meaning in it. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's I think it's just, you know, what I really came to appreciate this time around is how much it does put us in the headspace of Franny and just capture this woman who is uh, and the cinematography has so much to do with this, too. But this woman who's so exhausted by the constant threat of male violence in the air that she just kind of walks around in this wounded daze. And this is, you know, Kevin Bacon's character is a part of that. Even Mark Ruffalo is a suspect as well. You know, that's that's clear. Uh, mm-hmm. She doesn't know who to trust. And the cinematography by Dean Beebe, uh, who did the work on Holy Smoke, the cinematography on Holy Smoke, I love how he blurs the edges of the screen. And yeah. that, too, like the poetry, just shows you that this is a woman who's got such a sort of dulled perspective. It, it's blinkered. She's not seen clearly. She's grasping for things. And for me, this helped me understand, which I know is a sticking point for a lot of people and was part of my issue. You know, why is she even getting involved with Ruffalo? The answer is because he's sexy as hell in this film. He's clearly not a good guy. I mean, you know, all of the offensive things he says right at at the beginning in the bar, the way he treats her. And this is the Campion trick, right? And and Ruffalo's performance. I Mm -hmm. I think we need to give him a lot of credit, too, is that he makes this vile guy who might be corrupt, might be a serial killer, irresistible. In a strange way. And mm-hmm. that's a pattern, too. If you look back at Campion, right, in some of her films, we're, we're seeing this. So um, we're seeing it in Holy Smoke with Harvey Keitel and the piano to a degree with Harvey Keitel. And now we have another somewhat similar figure with Ruffalo here. So, yeah, I just think, you know, all of those elements are to capture this perspective that Franny is living within. And it was just really arresting to me. I was able to kind of let the genre stuff fall to the wayside and not worry so much about what was working or what wasn't. But I agree. By the time it gets to that climax and we've got to, you know, take care of business, shall we say, mm-hmm. it's not incredibly effective. Yeah, but you're right about Dion Beebe and the cinematography here, which is just dreamily deranged right from the very beginning. Whole parts of the frame, like you mentioned, are soft focus. They're completely blurred. There's this sense of disorientation right from the start of this film. And it's it's alluring at the same time. There's something romantically evocative about mm. something like the, the pedal storm that's occurring. Pauline, the half-sister, is outside while Meg Ryan's character is witnessing it inside. And again, it's very beautiful. While at the same time, a lot of the imagery, especially with that focus, is 
very kind of creepy yeah. and off-putting. Yeah. And, and part of that, too, is the point of view. The point of view of those shots, and this is a recurring technique BB and can't be in use throughout the movie, where it it suggests a certain voyeurism. It suggests that someone is watching. Is that person who's watching the killer or is it just Campion's way of kind of putting us as viewers in this uneasy, unknown headspace? So just like this, the sexual longing appears in her and it seems that it's both a good thing, a positive thing, but also maybe in some ways disturbing or putting her in the way of danger, we get that dichotomy as well in really almost every scene of the film, just in sort of the mood evoked by it, whether a character is saying or doing anything or not. In the imagery, too, we've touched on this with some of the other films, the quick cuts, the kind of random shots that we get, the random imagery. I, I was just writing in my notes things like dog leash and and the man who's doing karate out during the pedal storm or whatever he's doing to kind of meditate. There's just these random images that sometimes are, again, a little romantic and actually kind of sweet. And sometimes they're a little bit menacing and you're, you're really not sure even what they're doing there, but they make you feel a certain way. Yeah. I love that. You note that I think that's the key to this film because think of the other, some other moments where she is subverting romantic imagery. We have this entire motif of Franny's father supposedly proposing to her mother mm -hmm. in this old-timey... We get this old-timey footage of people on an ice skating pond. And honestly, I don't even think like the eras would match up that a woman that age at that time, her parents would have been you know, would have looked dressed that way and been on this idyllic pond ice skating. It's almost like it's completely right. in her mind that it's from a exactly. you know, hundred years ago, uh, but she subverts that, right? I mean, gruesomely so later on when we get the sequence of her father skating over her mother's legs and cutting yeah. them to pieces. So that's one example. How about the dancing in the climax, the dancing at the lighthouse? Mm -hmm. And maybe for those who haven't gotten to it yet, I'll just leave it at that. But Lighthouses are often used as romantic settings, right? And dancing is obviously a romantic gesture, but Campion is using both of those things to really disturb us. And so, yeah, I think you're dead on that that is kind of like the driving force of this movie is to keep us in that tension in that middle space. Yeah. And as we said, the movie isn't interested. Campion isn't interested in the crime elements at all. What she really is focusing on here, and this is the thematic connections to her work that you were touching on. The core of her movies being this conflict between kind of the animalistic side of us and the more civilized side, the the desire versus the repression of that desire. Sometimes that conflict is embodied by two characters. Sometimes it's all happening within one character. And that's really the case here in a lot of ways. We see it embodied within Meg Ryan, but her sister is also a reflection of that. You've got kind of, not that I was ever a psychology major, Josh, but you've got the Freudian kind of id versus super ego thing going on here, like you do in a lot of Campion's work, where Franny is the more reserved, rational. She feels a certain way, but she she holds it all in and doesn't act on her impulses, at least until she meets Ruffalo's character. And her sister is the opposite of that, and she nails it with a line that just feels like a summation line of a lot of Campion's characters to me. She says about Jennifer Jason Lee's character that you live out of your unconscious. Mm. And, and 
the best or most interesting campion characters, I think, do. Or they they walk that line where they're constantly just crossing over into that unconscious. You know, another bit of dialogue that um, captures exactly that is when, <laughs> when Franny asks Jennifer Jason Lee's character, would you trust a guy who gets blowjobs in bars? And how quickly... <laughs> She answers yeah. yes. It's like right. there's there's not a gap in between the question and the answer. And that no. gets to the same thing you're talking about. And also the funniest line in the movie, actually, by far, is when Ryan asks her, how many appointments did you make last week for the the mm-hmm. doctor, the yeah. married doctor that she's she's clearly chasing and at some point basically stalking? And she goes, 11. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And and that actually did make me laugh out loud. Like, talk about someone so living out of their unconscious, so acting on their desires. Yeah. And again, unlike her half-sister, not someone who just reads about her desires or kind of studies them or writes about them, but but lives it. She doesn't even pretend to be kind of a normal patient who, you know, I don't know what we thought she'd say to that, but maybe over the course of seven days, she makes like three appointments, maybe right. four. And you're like, what are you doing? This is going to look suspicious. No, she's made 11 appointments. And Franny speaks to that later, I think, when she tells her, uh, I'm scared of what I want. So she's, you know, kind of saying, I'm scared to live the way you do, I think is what is what she's essentially getting at there. And the thing I love about that relationship is just sort of the acceptance Franny has of Jennifer Jason Lee's character, you know, mm-hmm. of, of the way maybe if she, they were, I don't know, if they were full sisters, would she feel the urge to be more protective? I mean, they seem very close. She definitely cares for her. But some of those scenes between the two women of just working through this dangerous world of men in completely different ways, I thought were some of the best scenes in the film. Yeah, for sure. And we mentioned Ruffalo. I agree. Ryan is very good here. And I think I'm with you. I didn't think I was caught up on America's sweetheart, Meg Ryan, back in 2003. But I think I might have just been so stunned by her character's sexuality, frankly, that I'm not sure I really was able to process it as a performance. And watching it this time, I really was able to see the layers to it, the the frustrating nature of her character in a lot of ways, how much she withholds, and then other times how much she expresses. But Ryan never does that in, in a boring way at all. And Ruffalo here, you're right about him. He's a character who is vile. He is someone we shouldn't really be drawn to at all. We definitely don't want Ryan's character to be drawn to him the way she is, or we know that there is danger there. And yet you can't help somehow, but be drawn into his kind of crude honesty. I mean, she Mm. never fully trusts him and calls him out on that a lot, but at the same time, her behavior towards him is as if she believes everything he says. Mm -hmm. She actually processes it as if she believes it, but it's her brain telling her that maybe she shouldn't. Actually, I wanted to orient myself with what some of the critics at the time did say about this movie, and I read Ebert's review, and wow, did he just have a perfect line to describe Ruffalo and his performance. And really, he's just talking about the character, but he says, James is the kind of man who talks about sex in a way that would be offensive if he didn't deliver so skillfully what he describes so crudely. Hey, listen... I could be whatever you want me to be. You know, you want me to romance you, take you to a classy restaurant, no problem. You want me to uh, be your best friend and f- you, treat you good, lick your 
No problem. Ain't much I haven't done. The only thing I want to do is beat you up. That's that's James, the character, doing it, but obviously Ruffalo's the vehicle for that, and his kind of bracing directness is, as I said, something that you really are drawn to as a viewer, and you understand why she gets caught up in it. He walks the talk. Let's just say that, for <laughs> at least for Franny. But here's the question, and this is also pure campion. At the end of this film, you know, we, we discover that, uh, well, here's here's what I'll ask. Is Ruffalo's character good for her, even if he is innocent of the murders? I mean, that's a whole that's a whole nother psychological realm. And you you have to say no, even as you understand the appeal for her at this moment in her life. But this is where the genre gets gets subverted. Right. The question in most films like this would simply be if he's proven to be innocent, they will live happily ever after. And right. here we still have that question of, okay, but is this a healthy relationship regardless of the genre constraints going on? Yeah, you're so right. And I even went maybe a little bit deeper, or just another direction with it, where I was thinking again about Ryan and I was thinking about the romantic comedy she was most known for. And those films are defined by what? They're defined by the couple getting together at the end mm-hmm. and our sense of them living together. Happily ever after. And you are right that watching the last 20 minutes or so of this movie, I caught myself (laughs) at war with myself asking, do I want them to be together? Exactly. (laughs) You know, like like in a way they're they're perfect for each other and, and they certainly have the sexual chemistry, it would seem. And maybe they're the only two people in the world for each other. That that Ruffalo's character is never going to find someone like her, and she's never going to find someone like him who seems to actually get her. And yet you also wonder if if either of them are so broken that, mm. that they really should never be with anybody at all. And the fact that the movie makes you you question that and make you think about whether or not you want these two people to be together and even what that sort of brings you as a viewer. Right. I don't know that Campion is doing it or meaning it to be the meta experience that it kind of is and that it kind of becomes inevitably when you cast someone like Meg Ryan in a role against type like this. But you are instantly going, why do I why do I care? What are the things about people that draw them together and that make me think they're somehow going to be right for each other? And, yeah. and again, what's my investment in that anyway as a person? This movie really makes you think about those questions. Well, and that place of discomfort is where the final frames of Holy Smoke left us, or at least the sequence where they're on the back of the truck together, you know, and we're, we're trying yeah. to process, what does this mean? Why is she holding him in this maternal way? Like, what is she thinking? What is he thinking? And really the portrait of a lady, you know, leaves for us sure. in that space too. So, so Campion is not setting out to make her audiences comfortable. That has been proven true many movies over. In the cut, available to rent on most platforms, also currently playing on Netflix and the Criterion channel. Yeah, see it. If you saw it and dismissed it, revisit it. There's there's a lot to there's a lot to like and a lot to take in. Next up, another Campion romance. We'll see how twisted this one is. Bright Star from 2009. More about our Campion overview, including the full lineup and where to watch the movies is available at filmspotting.net slash Campion. That is our show.
If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Letterboxd, Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives over at Filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll, where we imagine future installments of the MCU directed by Film Spotting Golden Brick winners. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit Filmspotting.net slash shop, and you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at Filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out on digital this weekend, coming to Apple TV Plus is Finch. On post-apocalyptic Earth, a robot learns what it means to be human. It stars Tom Hanks. In limited release, the beta test, co-written, co-directed by and starring Jim Cummings, who made Thunder Road and The Wolf of Snow Hollow, Spencer is out with Kristen Stewart as Princess Diana, directed by Pablo Lorraine, who made Jackie and this year's Emma. But next week on the show, we're going to talk about the movie opening wide. At least that's our plan. It's Chloe Zhao's Eternals. Pairing that with the seventh film in our Jane Campion series, I can't wait to see what coincidence spotting connection we can make between Marvel and John Keats. I'm sure there's something there. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.